for God's favor right now. Uh, Lord, I love you, and I thank you for each person that's here. Uh, pray for uh, Bruce and Janice not feeling well. Get them the medical care that they need right now. Lord, I love you, and each person here is incredibly important to me. And so asking for your favor, and thank you that you're with us right now. Please bless in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's some just uh, simple things about science. Science, the, 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 uh, the ability for us to work in the smallest ways is phenomenal. You're looking at two fertilized eggs. Those are my twin granddaughters. That is Ruth and Susanna. This is this the, the science and medical science is just it's just fascinating, and uh, God's grace is seen in that image right there. All right, let's look at these. This is from Robert Weaver. In humans, the strands of DNA are almost two yards long, yet less than a trillionth of an inch thick. All right, think about. A trillionth of an inch thick. By the way, those embryos were huge in comparison. Were ginormous in comparison. Look at this quote from Francis Crick. And Justin, I know you know who Crick is. The DNA of a human stores enough information code to fill a thousand books, each with 500 pages of very small, closely printed type. Do you know who Francis Crick is? Anybody? Who? He's the scientist that discovered the helix of DNA. Okay, this is brilliant. British chap. What's up with the Brits? What's up with the Brits? Uh, Radman and, and Wagner uh, support that in their, in their work as well. Uh, regarding evolution, two well-known scientists calculated the odds of life forming by natural processes. They estimated that there is less than one chance in 10 to the 40,000th power that life could have originated by random trials. All right? Now, that's not some preacherism. That's not some Sunday school teacher pontificating what he imagines to be the truth. That is actually a legitimate attempt at scientifically measuring the odds. All right. Does anybody have an idea of how large 10 to the 40,000th power is, how big that number is. Let me show you this. According to most evolutionists, the universe is less than 30 billion years old, and there are fewer than 10 to the 18th power seconds in 30 billion years. And that gives you a concept of how big 10 to the 40th thousandth power is. Um, the complexity of the simplest known type of cell is so great that it is impossible to accept that such an object could have been thrown together suddenly by some kind of freakish, vastly improbable event. Such an occurrence would be indistinguishable from a miracle. Evolutionist Michael Denton said that. There is no scientific proof that life did or ever could evolve into existence from non-living matter. Furthermore, there is substantial evidence that spontaneous generation is impossible. Only DNA is known to produce DNA. No chemical interaction of molecules 
has ever come close to producing this ultra-complex code which is essential to all known life. Fascinating. The cosmological argument for God. Stay, stay with it. Stay focused. This one's easy. The next one's going to get hard. Okay, so let's jump in. is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy, and that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvin Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. 
This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful, much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. Okay, now the ontological argument, just a quick briefing on this. We're going to do philosophy now. That was science. Now we're going to do philosophy, and it's going to be a bit of a jump, okay? Let's give it a go. In the year 1078, a monk named Anselm of Canterbury astonished the world by arguing that if it is even possible that God exists, then it follows logically that God does exist. Anselm's argument came to be called the ontological argument, and it has sharply divided philosophers ever since. The 19th century German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer called it a charming joke but many prominent 20th century philosophers, such as Charles Hartzmann, Norman Malcolm, and Alvin Plantinga, think that it's sound. Here it is. God can be defined as a maximally great being. If something were greater than God, then that being would be God. And in order to be maximally great, a maximally great being would have to be all-powerful, all-knowing, and morally perfect in every possible world. Possible worlds are simply ways the world could have been. To say that something exists in a possible world is just to say that if the world were that way, then the thing would have existed. For example, even though unicorns don't exist in the actual world, it seems at least possible that they could have. So we can say that unicorns exist in some possible world. On the other hand, a married bachelor does not exist in any possible world because the idea of a married bachelor is logically incoherent. It could not possibly exist. So if it is possible that a maximally great being exists, then we can say that he exists in some possible world. But wait, a maximally great being would not really be maximally great if it existed in only some possible worlds. To be maximally it has to be all-powerful, all-knowing, and morally perfect in every possible world. So think about it. If a maximally great being exists in any possible world, then it exists in every possible world. And if it exists in every possible world, then it exists in the actual world. That is, a maximally great being actually exists. Thus, the atheist has to maintain not simply that God does not exist, but that it is impossible that God exists. Here's a summary of the ontological argument. Steps two through six are straightforward and largely uncontroversial. But what about point number one? Clearly, if it can be shown that the idea of a God is logically incoherent, then the argument fails. But is the idea of a maximally great being absurd? like a married bachelor, or a square circle, or the smell of blue? This doesn't seem to be the case. 
The notion of an all-powerful, all-knowing, morally perfect being that exists in every possible world seems to be a perfectly coherent idea. But couldn't we parody this argument and make it work for anything? Why not say, it's logically possible that a maximally great pizza exists. Therefore, a maximally great pizza does exist. However, the idea of a maximally great pizza is not like the idea of a maximally great being. In the first place, there aren't intrinsic maximal values that make pizzas great. There could always be one more pepperoni to increase its greatness. It's not even obvious what properties make a pizza great. Thin crust or thick crust, extra cheese, anchovies. It's relative to the taste of the consumer. In the second place, a maximally great pizza would have to exist in every logical possible world. But that would mean that it couldn't be eaten. So it wouldn't really be a pizza, because a pizza is something you can eat. The idea of a maximally great pizza turns out not to be a coherent idea. The idea of God, on the other hand, is an intuitively coherent idea. Therefore, his existence is a possibility. And the ontological argument shows that if God possibly exists, then God actually exists. Good? Good. <laughs> I know that's a bit of a challenge, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone turn to Psalm 8, please. Psalm chapter 8. Yeah. By the way, we're going to be wrapping up the science and the philosophy as of today. And uh, I'll move into the final, the final chapter of the series on evidence for God, uh, which I'm very, very excited about. Rebecca just had a birthday on the 18th, turned 38, and uh, it was a big event at our house. Uh, they made these chocolate muffins, you know, for the birthday cake, and special presents were purchased, and an amazing meal was made. Stephen worked really, really hard to make these um, exquisite Vietnamese spring rolls. It was really an amazing meal. And all of it was done, two concepts, in honor of and for the pleasure of Rebecca. Make sense? Rebecca loves Vietnamese food. She's crazy about pho. We're not sure how to actually say it, but we're going to go with that word, whatever it is. Some kind of soup thing. And uh, all done in honor of Rebecca and for the pleasure of Rebecca on her birthday. If we borrow those two ideas and we looked at creation as though God made this for a purpose, that means the heavens, the earth, all of it. And he made it as a way of somehow honoring us, as a way of giving us pleasure, as a way of, of giving us something that's going to actually help us, help push us to him. Let's read Psalm 8 together. Psalm 8, actually, I'll read Psalm 8 and you get to listen. Let's not read together because I have the New American Standard translation. Uh, and it goes like this. Lord, our Lord, 
How majestic is your name in all the earth. You who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your enemies to do away with the enemy and the revengeful. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you think of him and a son of man that you are concerned about him? Yet you have made him a little lower than yourself, than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You have him rule over the works of your hands. You have him rule over the works of your hands. You have put everything under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the animals of the field, the birds of the sky, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, our Lord in Hebrew is Jehovah Adonai Adon, Adonai Nu. You are the God who exists and you rule over us is what that a good translation would be. You are the God who exists and you are in authority. Adonai, you are Lord, your boss. You rule over us. How majestic, uh, glorious, beautiful, full of, full of majesty, full of honor, dignity, splendor. That is what he's like. How majestic is your name in all the earth? And you've displayed your splendor, your glory above the heavens. So verse one is saying, God is God. He's in authority and he has created the heavens and the earth to display or reveal that splendor. In other words, God's character is revealed in creation. For example, just like Stephen's character and skill was revealed in how he made these Vietnamese spring rolls or how Catherine and Andrea, how they worked together to make these amazing chocolate uh, cake muffins and, and all those things, those cupcakes. It was all in an effort to show their skill in a way of honoring and giving pleasure to Rebecca. So the psalmist, David, says, when I consider... What you've set before me at the table, when I consider your heavens and the work of your hands, the moon and the stars, I'm absolutely taken that you would do that for me. I'm not sure if you as a child or perhaps as an adult have been given a gift that you felt absolutely unworthy of and that it that it's significance was in fact inappropriate. The gift had such value in significance that you go, this isn't right. This is not proportionate. You know, I gave you a $25 gift card to Blaze Pizza and you're giving me $10 million. This is way out of balance here. 
I, 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 can't, I can't take this gift. Some of us have been overwhelmed by extreme graciousness and extreme generosity or because of damaged self-esteem. We really don't think we deserve any gift at all, whether it's a $5 gift, start, you know, gift card to some coffee shop. When I consider the gift of your heavens and your earth as something that you intend to show me honor and to bring me pleasure so that I can push it right back at you and I can worship you and know you. When I think about that, it goes beyond my comprehension. In fact, I I have a theological problem. I don't deserve it, but it dawned on me that you've made me somehow greater than all the flora, all the fauna, I am the apex of creation. I am the highest expression of your creative genius. And it is so high that I'm a little lower than you. That's right out of Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image. In Hebrew, plural of majesties. God's talking to the Son. The Son's talking to the Spirit. He's talking to God. The Trinity. Let us make man in our image. And you've made us just a little lower than you. One of the evidences that we are made in the image of God, you ready? Is that you have a morally guilty conscience. That you have a conscience at all. And some of us here are so sensitive in our consciences that if we, if we, it sounds silly, but if you, you catch a stoplight and you don't stop quite soon enough and you're over the little, the little white line, you know, that you're like, <gasps> is there a cop behind me? I, I, I have sinned against the federal traffic laws or the state of Arkansas laws and he's going to tag me with an improper stop at an intersection. Oh, you know, put it in reverse, you know, carefully, carefully back up. Excuse me, I'm clearing my conscience. I'm backing up. I'm feeling better about this thing, right? Did you know that white-tailed deer don't do that? Deer don't do that. And carp and catfish in the Arkansas River, they don't worry about stealing a piece of food from somebody else. They don't have a conscience. We do. That's a part of, 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 of the fact that we're created in the image of God. In fact, the great deception of Satan. What did he tell Eve? That if you would eat this root, what would happen? You would What? You'll be like God. And being like God is to know what? Good and evil. Do you know what the difference between Chris Perry and God is? I know good. I know evil. God knows good. God knows evil. God has never sinned regarding evil. And I have. And that separates me from God. Isaiah 54. Your sins have made a separation between you and your God. That he doesn't hear your prayer. Sin separates. So we are created in the image of God. And he has given us this thing called conscience. And we know him. We now have spiritual and eternal capacity to us. And we can know right from wrong. Good from evil. And in the way of Eve. In the way of Adam. We have sinned. We are all daughters of Eve and sons of Adam. Made in his image. And yet God in 
in mercy that goes beyond comprehension, has crowned me with glory and majesty. He's crowned you with glory and majesty. When we live out the character of Jesus, it's glorious and it's majestic. It's, it's beautiful. And God has given us the task of ruling over his creation with wisdom and usefulness. And David ends the psalm by saying again, Yehovah Adon, Yehovah Adonai, uh, how majestic, how glorious, how full of splendor is your name in all the earth, Eretz in Hebrew. He begins with Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He ends with that, with that Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Because David is teaching us that when he did physical science, when he looked at the created order, it moved him to a level of gratefulness that he couldn't help but worship and literally start calling God who he really is. You are God that exists, I believe, cosmologically, ontologically, you exist, and you are my boss. You are my Adonai, my Lord, my ruler. You are the one in authority over me, and I worship you. So if you get it, if I get it, if I get that God exists, and understand his true nature and his character as revealed in the created world. I get that he has a love for me that goes beyond anything that I've ever known ever. And I get that if I've got a brain in my head, I will chase hard after God and I will worship him and I will live out the glory and the majesty that he gifted me through creation. And that begins with the new birth by putting my faith in Jesus Christ, who is the answer to the sin problem, because I have known good and I have known evil and I have sinned with evil. And that has destroyed my conscience and destroyed me. And I am only made new and healed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is by faith, not by works. If it was by works, I would be what? My own God. <laughs> and now we're back to square one in Genesis 1 and 2. It is never by works. It's never been about your ability to believe perfectly or to do righteous works perfectly. It's never been about that. It's about the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, shed for the forgiveness of our sins. That is the gospel. And I would beg you, if you have never given your heart to Jesus, you would do that today. Absolutely. And if you want to be baptized, man, meet us at 2 at the Perkins, 116 Oneida Way, Maumelle, 72113. And let's get baptized. Let's get it done. But I beg you to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Christ Church, I want you 
to speak biblically about what we've covered today. I want you to speak biblically. We've looked at uh, the cosmological argument. We looked at the ontological argument. We reviewed some quick bullet points about science that are just mind-bending. A reminder that at Christ Church, we speak biblically. If what you say is not substantiated by Scripture and in the boundaries and the lane of Scripture, I'm going to ask you to be very, very quiet. You forfeit your right to talk if you cannot speak biblically. Okay, I'm asking you to never think with your mouth open. In other words, no rambling. Under the leadership of the Spirit, you should speak. This is what I want us to do. You should speak as though Jesus Christ is speaking through you. That changes everything. We don't want to hear from you right now. We want to hear from Jesus. And Jesus in you and the Holy Spirit. And that means you're going to only and always speak biblically. Questions are welcome. Always welcome. But if you speak... You speak biblically as though Christ and the Spirit are speaking through you. All right. And uh, remember, I am highly offended at a drunk belching his bourbon-laden breath in my face advising me about self-control. I don't want to hear it, buddy. Sober up. And then maybe we'll talk about self-control. Make sense? The Council of Fools is not welcomed here. At all. Ever. Ever. I want you to think biblically and speak as though the Holy Spirit is in you. All right. Question. Someone's here who's a doubter. They're not sure if God exists. You know? Or if we've got some teenagers, we've got kids here. And what if they're going, ah, this religion thing. I'm sick and tired of kind of holding on to mom's faith apron strings or dad's, you know, Dad's behest to get him to go to church when I really don't even think God exists. I think it's a bunch of man-made religion. That's what I think it is. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Chris, Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins and all those guys. Sure. What can you say biblically? What can you say under the leading of the voice of Jesus in you, the still small voice, that would cause us to be like David so that when we look at the created order... It just springboards us right into worship so that we can say, Lord, oh, my Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You're the church, Christ church. You are responsible to build up the faith of the body of Christ. What would you say? Lisa. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. When I think of the thoughts that you have to me, if I tried to count them, I couldn't count them. They would outnumber the, the sands of the sea. Thank you, Lisa. Psalm 139. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. What a gift. Thank you, Lisa. Someone else. How about the end of Job? Oh, man. <laughs> God doing science. How cool is that? Now, that's the voice of authority. Yes. Were you there when I set Orion in place, the bear, Pleiades? By the way, Justin, who is uh, a budding astronomer, has a telescope that probably is that big around and about that long. And he set that up in our front yard yesterday. And I looked at the Galen. I was seeing craters. The detail was mind It was amazing. 
to see that, you know. Fascinating what God has done, the created order. And Job says, I did that. God did that. I set the sun and the moon and the stars and their constellations in place. It's amazing. Someone else, how do we live this out? to that view. So biblical argument to them would depend on what they're coming out. What is their opposition to against? Is it, is it actually the existence of God or a concept that is applied to God that their life experiences told them couldn't be possible because of past experience? Yes, and you have answered so well. And, and here's the tension of what he's saying. Okay, Scott, thank you. If God exists and we've sought to prove that he does or demonstrate that the evidence says he does, then that sets up a serious problem. <laughs> if he does exist, then what's he like? Okay. Does he have bad moods? As we use some language at number 37 Bradford Drive, not 116 Oneida, which is your address. My address is 37 Bradford. Just a little clarification. At 37 Bradford, guess what? Some of us... I'm not saying I'm included, but it's possible. Get cranky pants on. Some of you may use language like that. You're grouchy. Are you wearing cranky pants today? You know? Some of us get in moods. Does God get in a mood? Does God put on his cranky pants? We know that he is. Does, is he hard to get along with? Okay. Now, guess what? If we could, if we could let our humanity be transparent, we'd say, actually, it is a problem. Because if God is so good and so loving and so smart and all-powerful, a maximally great God, then why is it that the people I love the most keep dying of cancer? And why is it that the people I love the most I hurt are hurt by those who abuse and are cruel and have no moral conscience whatsoever? Why does a good God, maximally great God, let that happen? And there's the tension. And now we're getting into the biblical teaching of the sovereignty of God. What he allows, what he permits, what he predestines, what he ordains. And we all live in that tension, Scott. And it's tough. And by the way, I think that's probably one of Satan's strongest points of leverage that God can't be good because look at all the evil, therefore don't believe in God. Absolutely. Someone else on why we should be like David and cry out, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Anybody else? Okay. Yes. Yeah. And how, how amazing and incredible that sacrifice is, is there. And 
Kathy, you've spoken such wisdom. Uh, there's a movie called Hacksaw Ridge. Some of you may have seen it. Yeah, powerful movie. I've not seen it. Um, a man who was a conscientious objector refused to carry a weapon and fire on an enemy. And the film is about th- this young man, kind of like an Alvin C. York story, by the way, uh, risks his own life and saves an absurd number of soldiers under heavy fire, many wounded and at risk of dying, and saves their lives. It's amazing, the story, uh, the true story, by the way, just like the Alvin C. York story, uh, uh, a conscientious objector out of Tennessee. Okay? There are some men that have this heroic thing in them. Cops have that sometimes. Soldiers can have that. Uh, this, this deep instinct to do the right thing in the most high-risk situations, being willing to lay down their life for somebody. But typically, they, lie, they lay their life down for someone that they believe is good or worthy. Would you lay your life down for somebody that's at Tucker Max right now or Varner on death row? And I will not describe what they've done. Would you be willing to do that? I would not. I would not. So, Kathy, you, you, you're speaking wisdom. That's a level of love to lay the life down for all, for God so loved the whole world, all the world, that he would give his son. For people who are perverse in disgusting ways that we can't even speak of without getting nauseous. He is good. He's maximally great. And he's maximally love. In fact, the scripture never says that God is anger. The scripture says that God is love. And our children, Carson, Carson, Caroline, Dory, Isaiah. Need to see. Mom and dad say, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've displayed your character, your maximal character, greatness, your splendor above the heavens. I see it. I get it. It pushes me to you. It brings me conviction because you've actually gifted me glory and majesty. A gift I I don't understand. In fact, you've made me so much like you. I can't believe it. And what can I do to say thanks? I'm going to worship you and I'm going to follow you. Christchurch, thank you for what you've shared today. I want to pray and we're going to sing these songs. They're going to literally bring us to sing uh, of his majesty. Abba Father, thank you for your love and grace. Ask for uh, a spirit of worship to take hold of all, all of us and that we could confess with David. You are Jehovah God. You are Yahweh. And you are Lord, your ruler. You are King, the great King, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And we follow you and we put our faith in you. We trust you. Would you please help us to worship you and give you the worship that you deserve? In Jesus' name, amen.